Kia ora, my name is Mark Easterbrook and you're listening to Going West Audio. For your enjoyment, education and inspiration, we've opened up our archives, queued up the tapes and unearthed the best oratory, discussion and performance from 25 years of the Going West Writers' Festival. In this episode, at Going West 2018, Dr Nikki Hari invited our audience to imagine the world anew and become part of the infinite game. Kia ora koutou, and thank you very much, Nicola and Diane and all those people who have been involved in bringing us all together into this room today, and what a wonderful day it's been. As Nikki and I exchanged texts this morning about our mounting anxiety, as Dad in the audience, he featured, um, the conversation ended with this text, remember, it's just a game. So today we are playing the Writers' Festival game together, and we're doing it together because Nikki has successfully concluded the writing the book game, and I've done some less successful and more (laughs) successful and occasionally um, completely uh, diabolical political games. And together, we today are playing the supportive sisters game. So all finite games, but all we hope are played in the spirit of infinite values and bringing into play infinite values and in the service of the infinite game, which Nikki is going to talk about today. So welcome to this session, The Game of Our Lives, Te Tak. Te Takaro o o Tato Oranga. So let's start at the beginning, Nikki. What motiv- motivated you to write the new book, The Infinite Game? And because we don't have a picture up of the books, because we want you to make darts, this is Nikki's second book, um, the first being Psychology for a Better World, which has also been republished alongside The Infinite Game. So where did The Infinite Game start? Great. So thank you. Um, great to be here with you all today and really special to be on the stage with Lila. Uh, so, in fact, actually here at Going West with the book Carbon Neutral by 2020, that was 10 years ago. And then uh, the book Psychology for a Better World, which I originally wrote and published in 2011, And the purpose of this book was really to, I'm an academic psychologist, so I was interested in trowing through the literature and finding the really cool ideas and useful concepts in academic psychology that could be applied to inspiring people to take part in political and social action. And that inspiring people is really important because psychologists often talk about behaviour change And I really resist that because I think if we're going to create this world, we need to have creative responses from people in their contexts and communities. So I wrote this book, did lots of talks and workshops as a result of the book. And then I was realising that there was something missing. This is strategies, and that's really cool. But it's like we need a metaphor or a way of bringing us together, a symbol that shows that everybody who's trying to do this stuff, make it a better world, is all in some sense on the same page, playing the same game. And especially the the joining or the understanding of how environmentalism and social justice movements come together, because often they seem to be at loggerheads, but actually I think we're really after the same stuff. So 
I was kind of seeking a bigger idea. And then I heard a podcast in which the philosopher, James Cass, suggested that in life, there are at least two kinds of games. The infinite game, in which the purpose is to continue the play, and finite games in which the purpose is to win. And I thought, there's my metaphor. So tell us more about the infinite game and the kind of the pieces of the game, I guess. Yeah, great. So I might just go to the podium for a minute just to give you the lowdown on that and to get you playing with your darts and then we'll sort of sit down and have a follow-up conversation. So basically, as I said, Carr suggested there were these two kinds of games in life. And I've been really developing that metaphor over the last seven years, including with research workshops, which we're going to talk a little bit about today. And my definition now of the infinite game is that it's about keeping what we value most deeply in play and inviting others into the game. Finite games are the rules, structures, bureaucracies, organisations, policies, laws, and very often competitions by which we organise ourselves as people. So the infinite game, if you like, is this kind of foundation, this beautiful foundation for the human journey on this planet of ours, whereas finite games are those structures that we organise ourselves by. Finite games are always on probation, or at least should be, to this bigger infinite play. Now, just to take you through this, this metaphor a little bit, let's imagine a game of beach cricket as the infinite game, and a game of test cricket, say, between Australia and New Zealand, as the finite game. Now, if we think about a game of beach cricket, the first thing is you want everybody to play. So it's inherently inclusive and participatory. doesn't matter if people speak the same language, know what cricket is, everybody's invited into the game. You have a tennis ball, hopefully a bat, set up some wickets, create some teams. If some people from this team have to go off and have their barbecue, that's fine. You just reorganise the teams to keep the game going. You might have a teenage girl who's actually more interested in watching the surfers catch the waves, and a great catch comes right in front of her, and plonk, she misses it completely because she's too busy looking out at the ocean. But, you know, that's part of the fun. That adds that moment of humour where we can all tease her about why she missed that great catch. A child, four-year-old boy, let's say, on the edge of the game, is he in, is he out? He finally gets up the courage, says, can I have a turn? You give him the bat, and you don't try and get him out. <laughs> you, you throw the ball so it bounces off the bat. You say, run, 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 and he has his turn, and that's all fun too. You might have a couple of people that really know how to play cricket up against each other, and they try hard. They try hard to play hard and to play cricket properly. And that's almost like a little finite game, a more structured competition within the bigger game. But we don't want that to take over. That would be boring. We want to play too. So the players that are really essential to a game like beach cricket are the players that know how to bring out the best in people, change up the rules, and keep it all in play. Now, if we think about test cricket, can you put up your hand, please, if you've been selected to play for the New Zealand cricket team? <laughs> Australian one? Is yeah. So the first point about finite games is that you have to be selected to play. And as for the idea that a few of the Australians would pull muscles and the New Zealanders would say, here, take some of our team, it's ridiculous. One of the players texting his girlfriend in the stand and missing a great catch? Out of the question. What happens in a game of 
finite game like test cricket is everybody concentrates. We're completely involved in the game. You're completely involved in the game, sticking to the rules, because if you lose focus, you're out, baby. And that is not what you want. How do you become a master? Because they're masters in the games I'm talking about. Master test cricket player. Well, you get a coach and you learn by the rules. And you become a cricket clone. Your mind and your body become attuned to playing that game. So finite games in their own terms, a single finite game cannot be changed for the... The rules cannot be changed for the duration of the game and it has a certain past-looking... Uh, a sense of being past-looking because actually for those players, they want the outcome of the game to be known before they even begin. They want to have become so trained that they can control that, like the All Blacks, you know, oh, an All Black team that'll lose eventually. That's really scary, isn't it? Because you have to control that outcome. Um, if I was to line up elite sports people here, you could tell what they were by their bodies because they've become so much that, that thing that they're playing. Now, another little way of thinking about it is, as I said, if you remember the definition of the infinite game, it's about keeping what we value most deeply in play and inviting others in, is to think for a minute, and this is the first bit of interaction for you, I'm just going to get you to talk really briefly or just name a couple of things to each other. Um, what do we value most deeply? I often move in sustainability circles and I realise the one missing conversation is exactly what is it we're trying to sustain? What is it? What is it that our hearts say is the most amazing stuff in this world that is about keeping everything that we care about going? So I want you to think for a minute. Okay, what do you think? Sacred, precious, special, what do you think in this world is a value for its own sake? What makes the world truly alive? It can be in any dimension, an emotion, relationship, part of the natural world, quality or an object. And it can be as personal or as general as you like. And what I'd like to get you to do, and I'm only going to give you about 30 seconds to do this, just with each of your neighbours, so turn to each side of you, you'll have at least one neighbour, probably two, say one thing of infinite value. What you think meets that definition. Okay. Thank you. I hope you shared something cool. Um, so I've asked this question to thousands of people. 1,085 were part of a research workshop. We constructed a word cloud from what they said. Um, and word clouds, obviously, we had to change up a bit of what they said to, to simplify it. The bigger the word on the cloud, the more people set a value um, that's represented by this word. So in case some of you can't see, love. It's, it's like a, um, the Big Bang or something, an explosion from which the other values come. Love, family, creativity, connection, landscapes, the ocean, very New Zealand word, I think. These were people in Aotearoa. Kindness, laughter, hope, belonging, trust, peace, fun, children, freedom, learning, openness, fairness, passion, emotions, purpose, curiosity, and so on. Uh, so those are the infinite values. That's what the infinite game is at its core. Finite games... On the other hand, remember that's those rules, structures, processes, bureaucracies, and I've become especially interested in competitive finite games because I think our society defaults to competition as a way to organise ourselves very often in problematic ways that I've outlined a lot in the book and we'll talk about more, I think. 
So finite games are played with finite values. And finite values are a value not because they're intrinsically a value for their own sake, but because they enable us or, sim or sim symbolise something else. So they're of secondary value, if, if you like. They're of value because a group of people deem them so. Any type of dimension, emotion, relationship, part of the natural world, quality or an object, can you just say one again to your neighbours either side? One thing you think meets this definition of a finite value? Okay, I'm going to see if there's one brave person. Somebody might have read the book. Um, I'm going to show you the word cloud for these. Anyone want to guess what the big word in the middle is? Yeah, and it is. So here we have money, status, power, competition, economic systems, winning, qualifications, houses, very Auckland word, <laughs> rules, appearance, religion, bureaucracy, ability, cars, and so on. So it's not a good, bad thing. It's a deeply important, significant versus ways we organise ourselves thing. And finite games become problematic and finite values become problematic when we think that they're the real deal, when we think that they're the point. So should we quickly play the dart games yeah. now? Yep. Okay. So you've all got to play the dart, I hope, by now. Awesome. And... Hopefully, pretty much everyone's got one and you worked with your neighbours if you didn't know how to make a dart because <laughs> it's always a bit of a challenge to remember the engineering techniques you learnt in childhood. Are we okay to start the games? We just need most people to have a dart. <laughs> we okay? Okay. There's three games, and I invite you to be whoever you want to be in this game. We're not going to judge you. We're not going to judge your behaviour. This is a game in which we learn and experience. The first game, pretty simple. What you might expect from a dart game. The object of this game is to keep the darts in play and to include other people. I will do some clapping up the front when it's time to stop. Stand up, please, and play. You can sit down, please. I'm having way too much fun. <laughs> it, it gets less fun. <laughs> She's good. Okay. Now look very carefully at the rules of the next game before you decide what to do. <laughs> the object of this game is to win. The winner is the person with the most darts. You may not manufacture new darts and you may not grab a dart from another person. Play. It's the Geneva Convention. <laughs> At this point of the session, the whole audience got stuck into several games. First, we made paper darts and threw them around the hall. And then we collected as many darts as possible, both as individuals and in groups. It was fun, it was insightful, but hmm, you kind of had to be there. Now, we rejoin the session as Nikki brings the games to a close and asks the audience what they thought of the experience. This, in this game, it's just a numbers game. <laughs> so, we have somebody here with nine darts. What's the most important thing about being a winner? That you get a little badge. <laughs> <laughs> and... 
Well, you don't have to stay there for a minute. You um, kind of near misses or people who didn't quite win but did nearly win because there's another game. The object of this game is to be on the winning team. The winning team must be three people. It's a team with the most darts. No manufacturing new darts, no grabbing darts from another person. Okay. So, oh, you, you may sit down now. Thank you. And that, that's the end of the games. And you're done with the darts. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's amazing. Here we are, five-minute dart game. What's at stake? A little badge. And we create those emotions. We manage to get all of those emotions coming to the fore. We'll have just two more observations. One, two, and then we'll move on. So you were right. You were being a sort of representative person. I've seen that backfire occasionally when somebody helps create the winner who comes up the front, but then they've got all their other cronies there with tons of darts, and they go with them for the team, and all the people that help them get there feel betrayed. So it's quite interesting. And I think I point to somebody just back here for the final comment on this. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So one of the most obvious things that happens is that the darts, as darts themselves, lose their intrinsic quality. And I often think this is so analogous to nature um, because, you know, in the first game, what were you mostly concentrating on? The darts. Watching them, wow, that's a cool one. Who made that, I wonder? This one flies, this one doesn't, interacting in that kind of way. When they become objects of our play and we count them, we often squish them, we squeeze them, and the, the nature of the darts is, is pointless. It's all, almost like how people are treating our natural resources. So now we'll go back to our conversation. <laughs> other conversations. Actually, cool. just reflecting on the, um, the introduction you made and the beach cricket analogy, yeah. and I know that quite a lot of the examples in your book come from your own sort of day-to-day -day institutional world, the universities. I read um, uh, 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 an extensive piece of journalism today that um, had, among many other quite disturbing figures about participation in tertiary education in New Zealand. Um, the figure that only one of 500 engineering students at the University of Auckland is from a decile one school. Mm. And, you know, I wonder if you could comment on that in terms of, you know, the, the presumably infinite um, values or hopes for education and how the finite games, you know, do or don't enable that to, to occur. I mean, education's the big one because, I mean, education, the university and schools, they've got this most incredible infinite game mandate. Like, when I think of our university, its mission really is to bring everyone into this place because on one level it's such a democratic and inclusive institution in a sense, you know, it's a public institution. Then we come together and we co-create this knowledge ideally bringing in all the diversity that we can to make that something that's really going to work for our society. But on the other hand, we have to structure ourselves and education is so often structured through these competitions. And 
some of the competitions are more, if you like, meaningful in that they're they're talking about skills and it's really easy to quantify them and so on. Some of them are less meaningful. And certainly the university has processes of inclusion and exclusion that can be quite problematic, yeah. But one in 500 from yeah. a poor school. Well, and it's, it's just, you know, what, yeah. what are the finite games that are, you know, that are preventing or stopping that system achieving its its own goals? Well, see, this is a... Um, it's such a tricky one because you're launching... Uh, we're launching into a whole lot of complexity around this. Like, part of my question is, why are we talking about engineering as if that's the epitome? You know, like, why aren't we talking about people in education who are taking education, for example? So there's always two ways of looking at these things. Who's winning and getting in the games that are currently the most powerful ones? That's one way of looking at it. And the other way of looking at it is, what are the most powerful games? And should we be focusing on integrating people into those or on fundamentally rethinking um, what power is about and how we should be structuring ourselves? So we had the, the session on the, the, the feminist session before lunch. And my question always about feminism is that there's a piece where I talk about it in the book, and I've written a blog on it as well. Until last year, not one of the top 50 companies in the New Zealand Stock Exchange had a woman as a CEO, not one. Last year, there was one woman. Um, and there have been two or three in the top 50 over the years. And part of it, it's like, you know, segueing from your question, you can say, why is this? It's terrible. There should be more women in these companies. And then another part of me says, but hang on. The way our system is going, we're destroying the planet. We've got massive inequality. Thank God women aren't in that particular game, at least as a large contingency of culture and hope and possibility outside that space. So when it would be really tragic would be if we'd be see corporate capitalism and our attitude towards the environment moving full speed ahead and sort of every kind of minority that you can imagine just incorporated into that. Um, so I know, that's, I know that's a long way around your particular question, but I always want to think laterally about these things rather than just assuming that the game in play is getting people in minorities into powerful positions because yeah, that's I not think, how I see it. I mean, it. certainly my reading of the book is the sort of idea of finite games becoming so sort of overwhelmingly dominant in our lives that we lose visibility of the values that they, they're yeah. keeping in play. Yeah. 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 Um, you talked about the darts, you know, in the second and third dart games, that the darts stopped being dart-like. Mm. They mm. stopped being used for the things that they are intrinsically designed to do, to fly, um, to in my case, not to fly, <laughs> um, but whatever darts meant to do. And one of my favourite concepts in the book is the idea of infinite play allowing us to be person-like. Mm. And I love the reference to chickens being a hen lady, um, <laughs> where Nikki writes, a bird flourishes when it is being bird-like. This may include flying, seeking a mate, building a nest, foraging for food. This 
this is why, as Michael Pollan has argued in his book, The Omnivore's Dilemma, putting chickens in tiny cages is cruel because it prevents them from doing what chickens are inclined to do, such as moving around and socialising. They are unable to be fully chicken-like, and so they cannot be said to be flourishing. You say that finite games can stop us. They not always stop us, but they can stop mm. us from being people-like. Can you tell us more about what it means to be people-like and how finite games affect our flourishing? Yeah. So, I, I mean, basically the finite games are these structural, cultural rules and culture's always imperfect, massively imperfect actually, because to organise ourselves as large bodies of people, we have almost like these sort of clunky policies and structures and institutions and buildings and everything that never quite work perfectly. Some work better than others. And so what, when finite gains become really rigid and controlled and lack flexibility, just like buildings actually can often do, they don't allow people to be in their true nature. And competition is something that I've become really interested in because we're such a competitive society. And so to take one example, um, go back to the education system, NCEA is, a, a, at least in theory, a non-competitive system. It's criterion-based, so that's that's a kind of good in that sense. But then we have these prize givings at the end of the year in which some student, some teacher, has to line up their students and say, you're the best. And that student has to go on stage and everybody else has to compliantly clap. And then some other student's heart is broken because somebody else got the prize for something they really love and thought they were good at and they had a great relationship with their teacher. So... Competition is one example of where we've sort of talked ourselves as a society into this idea that it's a good way to run education. Um, we have a competitive marketplace. Often in the sustainability space, actually, we create competitions to get people to participate. But behind all of that, I think it stymies our humanness. It stymies our people-like natures because do you know what people want to do when they've got a good idea? tell everyone. They want to share that. They want to be in that space. Children, if they're learning something together and one of them is really good at it, like playing the guitar or acrobatics or whatever, they'll spontaneously watch that person, celebrate that, learn from them, enjoy that. But if it's, if it's um, reified into a prize, that person's now best, then it all changes, the whole dynamic changes. And we're no longer giving ourselves generously to other people. We're no longer co-creating. We're, we're developing these things like jealousy. We're holding things back. I mean, intellectual property. I mean, thank you. I know, I know that publishers and intellectual property and all of that stuff, really complex, but intellectual property is an idea of holding something to one person. You know, so all of these things that prevent us from sort of freely just giving of ourselves, I think we have to really think about. In um, Psychology for a Better World, one of the um, this sort of areas that you explore and see as really important to um, inspiring engagement and sustainability and other sort of positive social change is the creation of identities that are associated with that. And I remember from the book talk, you talking about um, how you had to create a kind of tidiness identity mm. um, in your own own life. And for those, those of you who didn't know my mum, she wasn't always the tidiest person. In fact, <laughs> I do remember a friend coming home with me after school one day and saying, 
Who did the dishes? This was quite an exceptional event, apparently, in our house from my friend's point oh. of view. Um, but your book is so tidy. Mm. Um, the Infinite Game is so neat and tidy. It takes us through 15 um, infinite game, finite game binaries, all neatly packaged as principles, people, setting, knowledge and time. And then part two, which we'll come to towards the end, is a guide for infinite players. I'm just interested in how you found a structure for the book. I mean, I'm in awe of anyone who can write a book, um, but to write a book with such a clear, sort of coherent structure, where does that come from? How do you get there? Well, you know, I heard when I heard James Carr say, um, you know, there's two, two kinds of games, the infinite game and the finite game, I think partly I loved it because I just thought, wow, an infinite game, keeping the game in play. That just opened up so much. But I partly loved it because it was a game and because there's part of me that just does just kind of want to play. And I do love games, like actual games, you know, board games and that kind of thing. And so I love that combination of play and structure. So with the, um, because the workshops came before the book, um, the research workshops that I talk about quite a bit in the book, and I wanted to have a kind of poetic opening structure. And I also wanted to really force the two games apart to sort of contrast them with each other constantly. So that's when I came up with this idea of these paired statements that, that really forced apart them on these four different dimensions, which is in regard to people, in regard to setting, in regard to knowledge, in regard to time. And that took a lot of playing with and, you know, they evolved a lot over the workshops. But it gave me a real structure and discipline for writing that first part and teasing those things apart in that way. And then the second part of the book is, the, is, is in a sense, looser and less tightly structured because it's turning all this back on ourselves. You know, we've actually talked about the book in a way that um, is very practical you know, you've been talking about the values and how they are utilised in sort of the development of systems and how people kind of operate within society. But actually the first time I read the book, I found it almost religious. Um, and it's interesting for me because Nikki and I grew up in a very non-religious household. And I've always taken quite a lot of pride from the fact that our grandfathers... Um, one of whom refused to go through the bar mitzvah as a young teen, um, and then the other a member of the Rationalist Society. So, you know, rejecting the kind of constraints of Judaism on one hand and Protestantism on the other. And yet, to me, the infinite game sort of... I, I It resonated me, with me as a sort of religious tome in a way, and I just you know, wonder why there's, to me, was such a religious feel to it and whether you intended that. Like, are you our prophet, Nikki? <laughs> <laughs> well, I couldn't be your prophet, Lila, because, as you know, you can't be a prophet in your own land. Um, oh. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but it's and you not would, your you land. Would, yeah, but you would, ne <laughs> you would never, never treat me um, or listen to me as prophet. Anyway, um, so, so is there a religious tone? Well, um, I, you know, in our family, yep, there wasn't any of that structure of religion. But don't you think we were always asking the big questions? Don't you think we, I mean, both of our parents, um, it seems to me, were essentially trying to live lives of service. And I don't know how else to put this, but 
um, you know, our father went back to Fiji in his 70s and 80s to do work um, in the education system there. Our mother, uh, when we lived in Fiji as children, um, helped set up a playgroup. Our parents were always just always searching for how you be a person in this world through giving to other people. And and so we didn't have the structured religion, but we had the values. And I um, and I so I think what I'm trying to capture in this book is A, those values, but also really importantly, and I think this is what you miss out with in a secular kind of setting, is the mystery. I mean, what I love in my my readings into theology is the essential idea of mystery. And because I'm in a science, I work in a faculty of science. I know some of my best friends are scientists. Um, I know lots <laughs> of scientists. And, um, you know, because I know lots of science and know a bit about how it works, I also know how science, you know, is based on this huge unknowing, on this huge mystery, which is life, which is the essence of life. And and so I think God, as a notion, captures that mystery and it captures sort of beautiful, beautiful fragility of it, the way in which you can step into the space but you can never control or know what happens. All of those things have always just really resonated for me. And so I think this, the infinite game, in a sense, is a kind of secular version, this sounds so arrogant, but a kind of secular version of trying to name a kind of God, but, you know, that sounds way more arrogant than I mean it to sound. And it's also way more diverse in its reference points, it seems to me, than most religious texts. I mean, there's you're you're taking from, you know, so much of our intellectual history, really, and well outside Mm. your field. Yeah. I mean, that was one of the fantastic things about researching it. It was, um, you know, getting up every morning, having my coffees and just reading so widely and diversely, um, way beyond psychology, which was, yeah, lots of fun. Yeah. Um, I bet lots of people here are involved in community organisations, organisations that are motivated by kind of social justice objective or environmental preservation or improvement and so on. And I know that um, one of the issues you tackle in here is the, um, the, the importance of constantly recognising the finite games we play when we are pursuing, mm. you know, values which very much fit within your infinite value framework. And I know that you had lots of discussions with people in voluntary organisations and NGOs, with activists, with people, you know, in trade unions or political and political um, formations. And I just, you know, wonder if you can tell us a bit mm. more about that, like for all of us um, who may be engaged in these social change processes. What do we need to watch out for? Mm, mm. I mean, that, that, that's that, that's a huge question. So the infinite and finite games are sort of rippling through every layer of society. They go through both, you know, we hold both of them. And certainly things like NGOs, government organisations, which are, in a sense, endowed with or mandated with keeping some of those core values in play, still have to play finite games and be in a finite Mm -hmm. context. Um, One of the things I talk about a bit in the book is the fundraising game of the big NGOs. And I I describe when I was rung by a woman um, asking me to increase my donation to WWF, the World Wildlife Fund, and she was giving me a plug about the Maui's dolphin, Maui's and Hector dolphin campaign in New Zealand, but she had an Australian accent. And um, 
And it was this really weird sense of somebody ringing me from Australia to get me to put more money into a New Zealand campaign. It was just so discordant and strange. And I ended up, um, I did end up dona increasing my donation, but I ended, I felt sort of, I, it didn't warm, make me warm to the organisation. So I think, you know, when we're trying to do these really difficult things like get the money we need to progress, keep our organisation alive and so on, we have to be so careful about not trampling on other kinds of values as we do this. Um, and it's one of those things where I can't give a solution for every context that people are in because going back to the very, one of the very first things I was talking about, I think sustainability and social justice will be a result of people making creative solutions in their own spaces. And I'm sort of about hopefully giving people some tools, language, ideas, blah, 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 to help with that. Um, but there's a, also I talk about in the book Thomas Merton, who was a Catholic monk and, and very critical of the Catholic Church and, and time, saying that it had turned away from its function of, you know, thinking about the life of Jesus and God and all of those big ideas towards preserving itself. So I guess the challenge for any organisation is, yes, you've got to preserve yourself, but how do you always keep putting these values forward? And I also think... You can always just be a little bit more value-oriented than you are. So the infinite game isn't about throwing the whole lot out and being some pure saint. That's just, that's not going to work. It's about, can I just slightly push this further towards that infinite play? And once you, if you become a kind of practitioner, if you like, I think you can set that self as a little test for yourself and your organisation. Fantastic. And just um, as a promo, the... The, the part two of the book, which we don't have time to sort of explore today, really takes you through some of the practice um, hints, I guess, to be an infinite player. And, and um, you know, come there's a couple that really appeal to me about holding our finite games lightly and beware, it, beware of the trickster. So if you want to meet the trickster, then you can buy the book down the back. <laughs> um, and, I mean, I think all of us, when we kind of explore these issues, they resonate with us in different ways. And to me, you know, the application of it to politics and the struggle that somebody like Jacinda is having with cutting through, you know, the expectations of what it is to be the Prime Minister is a really good example of how, you know, our finite games limit people's sort of participation in the system and sometimes we can build shadow systems that bust through them. Mm. So thank you, Nikki. Thank you for the book and um, my brainy sister, Nikki. <laughs> and my awesome values-driven <laughs> sister, Lila. Thanks. Thanks for listening to Going West Audio. You can subscribe to the podcast and our regular updates at goingwestfest.co.nz.